0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to French Studies at the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annie Desessore, and today it is my great pleasure to speak with Dr. Celeste Moore about her recent book, Soundscapes of Liberation, African-American Music in Post-War France, published with Duke University Press in 2021. Dr. Moore is a historian of African-American culture, media, and Black internationalism in the 20th century. The book we will be discussing today, Soundscapes of Liberation, was awarded the Gilbert Chinard Prize from the Society for French Historical Studies. Her research has appeared in American Quarterly, the Journal of African American History, and the first edited volume of the African American Intellectual History Society. An associate professor of history at Hamilton College, Dr. Moore teaches courses on African American history, as well as histories of empire, race, black internationalism, and U.S. international relations. Celeste, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Annie. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Wonderful. Um, So I'd like to begin by asking you to tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, Where did you grow up? What drew you to study history and French history in particular? And why France?
0: Um, yeah, I'm just reminded of that great book, Why France, right? There's a, there's a lovely and interesting history of people um, approaching that question. Um, so I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, um, and really uh, didn't have a direct relationship to France other than you know, French language classes um, with a sort of decidedly Southern accent at that point in my life. And um, I think that, you know, I was reflecting on this um, question You know, and this kind of bigger question, I I suppose, that underlies my work is am I a French historian is a question I asked myself a lot in graduate school and to some extent on the job market. And now now that I'm settled, in a sense, it's like it's kind of a different question. But I think um, I'll come back to that. But I think the thing that really has um, long driven my research or I think is at the base of my research is an interest in why people are drawn to things, to culture, to histories, to um, music that is not their own. And like, what does that engagement or interest look like, particularly within racial terms? And, you know, one of my early um, kind of uh, experiences, I guess, or foundational experiences was I, after, before college, I... um, did a program where I was teaching English in Hong Kong and met expatriates for the first time and was also really interested in how people kind of all, I think things I didn't have a language for at the time, really, but like the class and racial and kind of, um, you know, social kind of hierarchical positions and all that, how was being navigated in that space. Um, so I think that's what really has really driven the work is, you know, what are people getting out of something? What is it? Why is it interesting to them? What does it call up or um, help them experience they might not otherwise. Um, and obviously there's a lot on this topic in terms of you know U S and African American history that in terms of the question of cultural appropriation and, and other forms of extraction. So I think that's one of the big questions that's long interested me. Um, and the other, I think piece, because there's a few different pieces of my kind of biography that take me here. Um, uh, the other piece, I think that I don't always articulate, but it was pretty foundational for me is, um, work I did in, um, the economic justice world um, in the early to mid 2000s. Um, So that was not work I did before graduate school was working at an organization that advocated for uh, advocated, you know, for kind of um, fair financial services and against predatory lending and other um, kind of extractive um, kind of um, financial practices by banks and other institutions, and studying this as, you know, something that had um, kind of really significant implications for black communities and communities of color in New York City. Um, so I think that was one other piece of my story is kind of, I think, a long term interest in social justice and economic justice, and um, you kind know, of that gave my history study a different kind of, um, yeah, it framed how I approached being a historian in pretty profound ways. Um, so I think those are like the two, and then the France piece, you know, yeah, I think it, it really in a way was kind of interesting luck that I was in college and I was taking a class in African-Americans and black internationalism in Paris, in fact. So it was like one of these very early, um, course experiences. And this was with a, um, professor named Paul Jefferson who was one of, um, kind of a generation of black historians, um, who um, you know happened to be at Haverford was uh, College, where I went, was a really incredible instructor. Um, he he actually just passed away a few years ago, um, and just had a really interesting kind of perspective on Black history. So I took this class, and it just became clear that the French relationship to African American music and culture was really like that was hitting all of the marks for me. Of like, oh wow, this is really interesting. Something is going on here, and there's a lot written about it, but I'm not totally sure the full story is there. So that's kind of those, I guess, three pieces are how I think about my trajectory in a lot of ways.
1: Thank you so much for that. And it's, it's true that all of that, hearing you talk about that, that all comes out in your book, you know, and, and I think there's something particularly powerful about music where, you know, you're, it's, it, you have an intimate kind of listening experience that can make it feel like it's yours, even if it's not. And that's certainly one of the themes that your book brings out and the economic point as well. Which we'll get into. Um, So perhaps this is a little bit related to what we just discussed, but was there a moment that first sparked your interest in this particular project? And I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about how it evolved from idea to dissertation to book. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. So, right. So, that, right. The first bit was as a college student, and I wrote about um, for my senior thesis um, about Boris Fionn, who comes up in the book, um, and, you know, in some ways that are both. Exciting and kind of mind blowing to me. There are definitely like small phrases or, you know, bits of research from that senior thesis like 20 years ago that, you know, emerged in that final book, which is just a fascinating thing to experience. It's very uncanny because I feel like I've changed a lot. Um, So that was the first kind of kernel. And um, right then I kind of was thinking about this and thinking about history more broadly, went back to graduate school and proposed this project. And really had no idea how I was going to research it, to be honest. In fact, I had a first trip to Paris in 2008, I think, um, pre like orals, you know, pre-comps and kind of that first kind of research trip. And I just was like, I had no idea where I was going to find anything. Um, I didn't know what was going to ground this project. And the other thing that was happening simultaneous to it um I was working on this project at the University of Chicago as a graduate student, and um, it's called Mapping the Stacks. It was led by Jacqueline Goldsby, who was then at Chicago, and it was um, it was a Mellon-funded project that was kind of pre- premised on the the idea was that you know to tell African American history, you need to have archives. Like the archival basis of that history is what is the first necessary step. And she had observed, and the project was organized around kind of managing a backlog of archival collections, all of which could be, should be um, really kind of critical archival um, material for uh, not only the history of African-Americans in Chicago, but more broadly because Chicago was this kind of critical city and space for African-American history. And I was hired on that project around the same time. So I was doing I was processing archival collections with um, other people, other members of the team. It was a lot of us from history, literature, film studies, and um, learning from archivists um, at the Vivian G. Harsh collection where I worked about best practices. Like I was like really deep into this question of archives. Um, and, um, and, 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 I was there doing that. Right. And then I had this project and I was like, how am I doing this project? All I can seem to identify from the written material out there is magazine articles, critical, you know, jazz criticism, right. That was kind of, and I just didn't really feel that energized by writing about just published work and and journals and magazines. Um, And um, around that time, right. So I'm in my archival sort of, you know, moment I'm thinking about the project. And um, I'm at I end up going to the Bayenne um, at the Bibliothèque Nationale in, in France and Paris and meeting an archivist there. And she made some kind of offhanded comment. This was um, Anne Legrand, who's um, lovely, It wrote a book on the critic uh, Charles Delaunay as well. She said, you know, there's this guy named Sim Copans who was a radio host and I'm pretty sure that he's donated some of his books or something to the local library in Suyac, which was a small town in the south. It's a small, it's a small town um, south of France. She said, I don't really know much about it, you know? And so I kind of, I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, something, right? And so I reach out to the archivist there and, um, or she gives me the name, um, Geneviève Boujou, and we start to communicate and. I don't know if it was a question of translation or just sort of uncertainty but she just you know she's sending me what they have and it's like just a long list of all the books they have of his and i'm thinking all right well maybe i could do something with that right like maybe someone's book collection could be the basis of some interesting historical (laughs) point so so i still go there like with on a sort of a wing and a prayer to suyak to start doing research with her and I'm—I remember this really distinctly. We were in—I uh, think it's like the Palais de Congres in the small town. We're in the attic because it's all in boxes still, all these books and stuff. And I'm looking through a book of his, and I see a memo, or like I think it was a memo, or something of. was so someone who he worked for the State Department. So I'm sure we'll talk more about him. You know, he became a really critical figure in the book. Um, it's a memo, or it was like a something about his work on the radio because he was a radio host. And I was, and I, I showed it to Genevieve and I was like, look this is so interesting. And she was like, oh, if you are interested in that, we have boxes of that. (laughs) And I said, oh yeah, that's actually what I'm interested in. And that, and it was this incredible moment where just this whole archive just kind of unfolded before me. And again, it was totally unprocessed. So all of a sudden as well, my experience working on this archival project in Chicago, right, totally different context than this French archive, but then I also started to feel this connection, right? As I'm reading through, you know, going through the materials in this in this um, unprocessed collection, right? I'm seeing letters from Langston Hughes, I'm seeing correspondence with M. A. Césaire about the 1966 festival. I'm seeing kind of long, you know, like written histories and kind of correspondence about what African American music is, and it was I realized, right? This was an archive. Now, this is also kind of this interesting question of what what am I and what is this book? It it became clear to me that it was in a way an archive of African American history, but something that had occurred elsewhere. Like I was in the south of France, but it was actually about Af- the history of African American culture, but it had been preserved elsewhere. And it was a really that was a really critical kind of dissertation moment for me. And it and that moment just kind of gave me the confidence that there was a story here that wasn't just in magazines um, and a lot of other things started to unfold as a result of that but that was kind of my origin story i think for the project kind of coming into focus
1: that's so fascinating how that came together and i think you know when you're working in radio and this is maybe a good segue for the question i wanted to ask you next you know how how do you get to work on these sound doc how do you find them where where do you know where to look because the band of course just has you know, countless hours, I mean, just infinite amount of, of archival, um, radio material. But if you don't know what you're looking for, you could miss something great. So it's interesting how sometimes to get to the sonic, you have to go through the, the print, the analog, the paper first to kind of know where to look.
0: Right. Totally. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was like, it was, it was interesting because I started in a way, right, a sonic project by looking at transcripts and all the kind of written ephemera around, What was, but I became familiar with, right? What I understood was as a sound history, but it was I didn't know what Sim Copan sounded like for a very, very long time.
1: Right. Yeah. So you first saw his writing and then heard his voice, and you talk about that in your book as well, kind of that discrepancy between the visual and the the audio. So you know, I wanted to talk about your your title, um, Soundscapes of Liberation. So it is a project of history. It does engage with sound studies and sound. Could you speak a bit about your choice of that first part of the title? Um, what do you mean by Soundscapes of Liberation? And how do you define sound as an object of study in your in your project?
0: Yeah. So I, you know, it's um, thinking about the the first titles of the book <laughs> that I was trying out in various forms. In fact, the title of my dissertation was I think "Race and Translation." So I was actually at that moment imagining the book um, in more of an interpretive translation, um, intermediation kind of form. And and it, and it was helpful in a lot of ways, and then in some ways not right because it was kind of taking me into kind of kind of almost like an application of a litter, you know, something with a whole lot of meaning and weight within kind of the question you know, literature, literary studies, trying to apply it to kind of sound. And I mean, again, it was fruitful in a way, but not actually really getting to what I was trying to do. Um, And then I think I was kind of navigating or thinking about, right. Networks and circuits and Atlantic world was kind of, and then I think at some point I realized in beginning, um, because you know, sound studies was not a part of my own dissertation or graduate training at all. Something I really only encountered um, toward the end of that graduate period, I think. And you know, I guess um, I know that it has existed well before you know my time, but I do think it's coming into kind of greater um, greater visibility or audibility um, um, thanks to the work of people like you know Jennifer Stover and others, right, in the Sounding Out blog and other places. Um, and so I think when I was reading, um, beginning to read, you know, into grad school, kind of early, um, early part of the kind of revision process, reading more deeply into sound studies, the question of or the idea of a soundscape, right, as something that both exists in one place, right, as a way of describing one sensorium um, and thinking about, you know, sound not only as something that you here, but is shaping how you experience and understand the world. Um, that was really, um, helpful. And then when I started to think about it and and it was helpful on a kind of micro level, right. I was, um, able to use that idea, um, to kind of, I got, give me, um, gave me more like you Know, kind of, um, I guess more more grist for my intellectual mills. This is back to another um, college advisor who would always say this as I was thinking about, you know, um, a group of young people, right, as I write about in the book, gathered around one radio set, um, at a sanitarium, or as I was thinking about a particular concert venue, or a sonic encounter with an album, right? In one of my chapters, I begin with this kind of Real or imagined encounter with the boxer Joe Lewis, by a, with a, a French young boy like these moments I think uh, started to kind of get sharpened um, a sense of what was happening when I was thinking of it as um, a, a, not just a, you know a, pl- a moment in which people heard but a moment in which someone's sense of the world was getting kind of shaped by by virtue of not only what they were hearing but how they were hearing it and then I think. When I also kind of the other piece of it um, that was really helpful in thinking about soundscapes was, you know, that to think of it as something that extends through technologies, obviously beyond one place. Right. That it connects um, on one hand, connects people and connects a kind of listening public, you know, um, think give a like Kate Lacey's term. Um but also as something that then creates all kinds of interesting misunderstandings and misapprehensions and, and differences of experience because of the scope of that listening experience. Uh, because what you're producing on the radio is being heard in different places and different ways. Um, and so that idea and then the liberation piece for me was um, a way of speaking to that I guess in a way that misapprehension and apprehension of of something, right? That African-American music is about a kind of, it it is emerging from a kind of liberatory project in many ways and is resonating for some audiences as that, as a kind of mechanism of solidarity, a sound of solidarity as a way of connecting. But it's also kind of, um, well, all kinds of things that's signaling. It's also signaling kind of, You know, an idea of liberation, a possibility of liberation um, from, you know, I don't know, um, on other terms, like a personal liberation or freedom, right, which is not quite the same as like an anti-colonial liberatory movement. But there's kind of different, you know, I think I saw in the book, in the project, a lot of... um, white French listeners in particular who were getting a sense of kind of their own possibility of, um, you know, some kind of emancipatory, you know, possibility from African-American music. So there's that piece of liberation. And then there's also this dimension where African-American music, music is being wielded as a political project, right? In which, so it's almost kind of counter liberatory, right? It's actually about, you know, um, it's a about entrenching power it's about gaining power and so um, it's kind of there's kind of an irony there right it's like this music coming out of um as a kind of uh, a music that's coming out of the possibility or hope of um of emancipation liberation um civil rights human rights and yet is being you know wielded in these different ways so i guess you know i was trying to capture in that title right the sound, the sound, the sonic dimension of the whole project, um, but also a lot of the, the kind of tensions and contradictions that I think are coming um, out of this music and its distribution and its diffusion.
1: Right. And I think that's something that's really is captured in the soundscape because it's about communities, right? That are And kind of sites of listening and, and different communities that are formed around this music um, in ways that are sometimes contradictory or, um, highlight tensions.
0: Yeah. And and I think also, right. That it can actually exacerbate hierarchies and kind of power dynamics, right. It's not just kind of a, you know, sound as something that brings everyone together. Right. It's like, it's, it's like, and I'm interested in both of those pieces.
1: Hmm. So interesting. Yeah. So, um, let's talk now a little bit about the subtitle of your, uh, your title. Um, so your book talks about African-American music and particularly in the post-war period, even though you also talk about the Cold War period and the decolonial period, which we'll get into. But I just wanted to ask if there, um, what are the ways that the post-war period um, differs from the interwar period? Because in your uh, introduction, you talk about Josephine Baker. I think many Americans or, or many listeners might visualize Josephine as, as an American figure, a black American figure in France. So how is um, the, this period that you begin with different, um, from that mm-hmm. period.
0: Mm-hmm. I think, um, well, a few things, I mean, it's actually interesting that the title, um, represents, I'll get to the post-war in a moment, but it represents, you know, and calling it African-American music that also represents, I think, a shift in what I imagined the book would be initially it was going to be just on jazz. Um, and actually it was in, the Copan's papers that I first learned about Louis Ashiel and who specialized in um, created a choir that specialized in African American spiritual music. And you know, I think as many dissertation writers will uh, kind of maybe connect to, like you sort of first, like, oh, this is a problem. I wish I could use this because that project is this. And then you have this moment where you're like, or I could change the project. <laughs> um, and so it doesn't have to just be jazz. It could be all these different genres and musical traditions and, and how they, what they signify. And I do think that is one piece of the post-war story as well, is that the interwar period um, was, I think, you know, If you think about the history of African-American music, um, there's no question that the interwar period was pretty important for a lot of traveling jazz musicians and African-American performers, um, including Baker. Um, It was, um, you know, lots of reviews and performances and possibilities there. But it was um, and some touring. But it was, I think, a smaller, basically on a smaller scale. I think it was a smaller number of fans. It was a smaller um, was a, I mean, obviously Baker was a huge, had a huge impact, um, but we're not talking quite as many performers. And I don't think the audience really the kind of both the the listening radio audience or the live audience was nearly at the scale as that you would see in the post-war period. So I think that's one really simple kind of distinction as we're talking about more people. Um, but I think that the other piece of it, which is pretty foundational to the more people is that African-American music is getting circulated in the post-war period through a lot of different venues and networks. And that's probably, that was the most striking piece to me. And I I had come into the project having read, you know, Kristen Ross and others on kind of, you know, decolonization and modernization. And so I had a sense of how distinct the post-war period might've been. And, And I was already primed to think of it in terms of in terms of decolonization, um, in terms of um, a kind of expanding consumer culture, both in the U.S. and France and elsewhere, um, like Victoria de Grazia too. Like that was kind of reading that material. I was also reading, of course, lots of work on the Cold War and the particular political importance of African American music. Um, but then, when I was into the archives and history um, for the for the book itself all of this kind of came into sharper focus as like the material structural conditions for how people encountered African-American music that um, you know, for example, Sam Copans, who I mentioned, whose papers were in the, um, in Suyak. I mean, his whole career kind of maps on to this incredible history, I think of, of um, you know, first the destruction of the French radio networks in world war II and their reconstruction with the, Eager help and support of the US uh, government um, and State Department, um, and kind of the early versions of the Voice of America, which he was part of. Um, and so he got his start, right, um, you know, with these weekly radio programs about American and African American music. It was on the French radio, but it was State Department produced programs. And that cozy relationship lasted for a very long time. and um, And that's how, right, many people really became it became familiar with gospel or jazz or the blues um, was through his regular programs through this you know um, this American uh, accented French this you know where he was a he was kind of hit his college or you know training as a professor his PhD in French literature he just sounded he um, had this particular sound that was very cultivated and really resonated. And so there's that kind of story. Like right? So the people encountering that is really different than the ways in which Josephine Baker's image would have circulated in the interwar period. It was much more intimate. It was much more widespread. And... Coming into households, you know, literally into households, the radio that would never have identified as jazz fans or as, you know, um, certainly and they were certainly not jazz critics or kind of this kind of typical um, uh, idea of a jazz fan. Um, so his story, I think, really kind of clarified all of that for me. And he had letters, just hundreds of letters from listeners, many of whom were women, housewives, um, soldiers, um, you know, mechanics, um, you know, uh, Various youth organizations. It wasn't just a kind of, you know, the typical kind of jazz fan you imagine one imagines maybe in like Saint Germain des Prés in the nineteen like late '40s and '50s. Like there was a whole range of listeners, um, and, and their encounter with African American music was facilitated um, by these kind of massive changes in radio technology, State Department interest, and um, French cultural infrastructure.
1: Yeah, so fascinating. Um let's get into a little bit more of everything you're just talking about here because it's it is true your book really shows that this is very much also the history of radio and how radio is one of the conduits by which this music is being distributed and your book traces a number of different what you call these networks of dissemination. Radio is one of them but not the only one. Um but that this is um, you know, facilitating this this transfer of this music and its popularity. Um, but as you just really um pointed out in, in this really interesting way, you know, your book traces this intersection of I think the this development of this global market. Um this this consumer base for um, and, you know, where where African-American music is commodified, marketed, sold um, and distributed. And also um, at the intersection of U.S. and French diplomatic, um, you know, cultural diplomacy efforts um, in the in the post-war era era and beyond Um so all of these things, um, you know, are, are playing out in your book. Let's maybe shift to talk more about that first chapter because you were just mentioning Sim Copance. So he is one of the main intermediaries, one of the main characters in your book. Um, and you were just discussing this, but how did he, how was he instrumental in transforming what you describe as Normandy and also moving beyond Normandy throughout France, transitioning from a soundscape of war where, you know, bombs are being dropped on these French villages all over to what you call the Soundscapes of Liberation. What was Jazz's role in that? And how was Copans himself involved in U.S. cultural diplomacy efforts and also the process of reclaiming the French national airwaves from um, occupied France?
0: He is such an interesting figure Um, and as soon as I, you know, I'll just say, as I discovered him, it was like he was everywhere. And you mentioned to anyone in France of a certain age, they remember. And there's actually, you know, I talk about in the book, there's a, um, a book by um, Georges Perrec, which is about, like, Je me souviens, I think, I think, I remember. And he's it's like a list of things he remembers that marked his childhood and his, uh, his coming of age. And, you know, I remember discovering Copan's broadcast as sort of one of these markers of everyday life and experience, which I just thought, really captures it. He was enormously influential. And so this person, Copan started, you know, was the, um, the, the child of um, Lithuanian Jews in Connecticut. He grew up in Connecticut, went to Brown to study um, French literature, and he was interested in French-American relations, but in the 19th century. And like many men of his generation, particularly with his language capacity, um, he was recruited, um, uh, and now I can't remember exactly the name, but he was recruited into radio work for the U.S. military. We can say that. And his first, um, he came to France. I mean, he had been in France before, and had actually he actually been involved in some um, kind of activism, you know, among um, kind of anti-Francoites and the Spanish American uh, Spanish Civil War. So he had a very his background in kind of leftist politics, but then found himself, right, as part of this military infrastructure um, in the Office of War Information eventually. And so when he came to France, it was just after the Normandy landings. And so he's kind of moving. And in fact, I had a, I think one of my favorite parts of dissertation research was actually going to all the small towns that he kind of tracking his path um, in Normandy. Um, And he would basically come in you know, hours or a few days after the kind of liber- the liberating armies had been there. And his job, he described, was like to advise and, and and reassure the public. And so he had this mobile broadcasting unit. He was not the only person who had this in which they were going to be broadcasting news from this truck, because um, all I think my understanding is right there a lot of radio sets have been destroyed by the Germans or that had been the um, expectation. So people didn't have access to news. And the way that he brought people into the town square and all these different squares around Normandy was by, um, he needed to play music and what he chose was jazz and what he chose. And then this kind of gets into this infrastructure question that became so interesting, right? Once you start kind of digging in, what he had access to were victory discs or V-discs, which were some of the only, um, albums or records being produced, um, in during World War II due to a strike as well as, um, scarcity, Um, concerns. And, um, so what he, he was, was this military issued record. And in many cases I talk about in the book, he was playing, um, I think a recording of um, blue skies, um, by, um, I think it was by Tommy Dorsey, um, by, by white jazz musician, you know, was using this to kind of reassure and bring in this audience. And it was for me, a really interesting, again, soundscape to start to think about, okay, so here is, um, a Jewish American uh, pr- pr- professor of literature, right? Who's been trained in radio, who's there because he can speak French, who is, I think at this point and for the rest of his career, hiding his Jewishness, right? Presenting, I think as white to the French, um, to his French audiences um, and bringing them in through the performance or distrib- you know, the diffusion of um, an African-American musical tr- tradition that has been kind of shifted or warped into something else. And I think this whole, you know, and 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 that and that's all happening in a in a history that I think, you know, actually as I started writing about it many many years ago, it feels like our researching um I was just starting to dig up material that other people have since published on and I'm really glad about um just really how I mean how brutal this landscape was not only for the French but also for African American soldiers and um um and I believe um, uh, that there's a the more recent book. I, I'm blanking on her name right now. Um, at Wisconsin about um, about rape in World War II about um, the um, the African American soldiers. Essentially, I mean this is one part of the story. Were accused and and um, and in some in court martialed and hanged actually as a result of accusations of rape by French women at a just you know, really disproportionate kind of level compared to their, um, you know, how many African-Americans were in the U.S. military. So the, there's this, Is I mean, in the, in the same places where Sim Copans is broadcasting jazz from his little truck are the same places in which I was finding just kind of, I mean, really horrifying material about how the population, local population was responding to black GIs. And that's not the story that I think people want to tell about, the French relationship to African Americans. Certainly, that's not a part of the mythologies of liberation. That liberation actually occurred alongside and was a kind of precondition for um, racial violence, I think is something that I'm glad people are starting to uncover. Um, but I, you know, it's it's a it's it's a really unsettling part of this story. And I think gave, you know, as I looked at that in relation to this other story we have about jazz and World War II, right, as like the soundtrack to liberation. And I'm thinking, but this is happening alongside, right, the continuation and deepening of a kind of racial war. Um, and, and this is happening on all sides of this, of course, um, also for, um, you know, African and, and Black Francophone um, soldiers as well. Um, that it's that kind of that that juxtaposition, I guess, I thought was important to underscore. Um, but I think so That that was one piece of it. But then the other parts of the chapter that, I think started to kind of come into focus for me was, you know, of course there was the victory discs. Um, there were also, you know, American military um, radio, kind of radio broadcasts. There were recordings of variety shows featuring African-American performers in the U S that were getting recorded and put on these kind of large transcriptions and, and shipped over. Um, there was um, other recordings happening in France. There were um, a number of, you um, uh, bands and, um, that were created military bands that were performing jazz in both Normandy, as well as in the South of France that were, you know, attracting, um, a lot of different, uh, um, you know, French fans. And so there's a kind of, it's an interesting moment that I think can get read, right. As this kind of celebratory moment, but then at the same time, right. There's this kind of undercurrent of fear and violence from so many sides, right. That I was trying to capture in that, that first chapter.
1: yeah, absolutely, and I I don't want to misquote the numbers that you point out in your book, but I think your book does a lot to illustrate that history. Where um, I think you say something like the GI's African American GI's is something like ten percent, but um, of of the total population, but over seventy seven percent were accused of these cases of rape and violence, um, and and were punished for you know these crimes that they most likely did not commit. Um, so your, your book does a really wonderful job, I think, of, of showing that contrast. Um, and I believe you discussed the story of one particular black GI who said – who you found had, – had said something along the lines of if I had a disc, you know, like a, a, a victory disc in my hand, then I would be well-received. Right. But right. that's right wasn't always the case.
0: Yeah. I think – well, and I think that it's so complicated. You know, I think the – you know, one of the other kind of interesting, I guess, little sub – kind of historical or historiographic questions I kind of got into was, right, to what extent was this the kind of transfer or importation of um, kind of um, racist and racial policies in the U.S. into France by the U.S. military? And there's no question the military, the U.S. military is, is, you know, introducing something there. Um, But I also, I don't think that was the full story, you know, and I think there are um, kind of, there were racial ideas and ideologies that we have to kind of, that were, I think, amplified or called up, um, to use, I guess, some sound, sonic language, um, uh, into being or and in, in transformed into new ways because of um, you know, how local French populations were reacting not only to African-American soldiers, but also to the prospect of African soldiers um, and, um, you know, uh, the colonial, the, you know, the colonial part of the, the French military. Um, so, yeah, it was, I think, um, a really jarring story to encounter and one that I don't feel like I did full justice to, but I'm glad other people have written about it. But also it helped me understand the book's work, right? That It wasn't just going to be about music as though music is separated from all of these kind of um, powerful mechanisms of controlling people, of uh, moving people, defining people and defining their life chances, whether they're in the U.S. or France.
1: Right. Absolutely. Um, On that note, could you speak a bit about also... in this first chapter, one of the things I found so interesting was how these debates around jazz and what is quote unquote authentic jazz versus, you know, so avant-garde authentic jazz versus more commercial jazz or industrial jazz, how these got caught up in the story about Frenchness and, you know, French national identity. So could you speak a bit about the the, the characters who were shaping these debates mostly in Paris, I believe, around around this time.
0: Yeah, the book, um, you know, in a way, it was kind of an interesting part of writing, right? Because there's sort of, there's a prehistory that you have to get through, right? In a sense of, right, there's this whole world of jazz fans and jazz critics um, whose work kind of coalesced around the, the hot club of France, which, um, you know, no question had a really important role to play um, for definitely the interwar period and in and, and the post-war period as well, in defining what African-American music and what jazz was in particular for French audiences. Um, and, you know, had a powerful role in, you know, the careers of a lot of musicians. Um, and that, um, that was the work of Charles Delaunay and Hugues um, who um, were jazz fans, jazz critics, Dolanay was the one, I think really a pioneer in discography, right? Like keeping track of all of the, um, records of, you know, particular musician or band, um, this really obsessive and, um, I, I mean, and, and, and celebratory. I mean, they were, they were, they were enormous fans of jazz and, um, and they they produced a lot of written material and knowledge about African American music. All you know, some of which, of course, had its own particular kind of uh, you know vantage point or perspective, um, and 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 many of which um, you know one might argue with, but um, or a bunch of which one, one might argue with. But they um, the hot club. Part of what defined it, and then eventually also kind of led to um, its uh, kind of falling apart at various points, was this debate around commercial versus authentic jazz or traditional versus bebop. Right. And, and, you know, anytime you get into debates around authenticity or what is on the authentic, especially when it comes to African-American music, you know that you are in some, like, you know, it's not um, it's racial. It absolutely is about racial identity and it's about the possibility or capacity of white observers, critics Um, interpreters, right, to control that conversation. And the other thing that I think was, you know, that I became really interested in as I was tracking their story is that it also was definitely about money. It was about profit. And it was about, you know, I think from a kind of marketing standpoint, right, you create tension or drama or debate, and then, you know, everyone gets invested, and then everybody who's involved in that makes more money because you've you've heightened the you've heightened the tension, you've heightened the stakes for caring about what this music is and what it means. Um, so anyway, they they formed the Hot Club in the nineteen thirties. It was a fan club. Um, there were um, listening um, parties, and they did a little bit of recording of musicians and some distribution, but it was really mostly about supporting or facilitating um, access to jazz for white French jazz fans and, and doing so through the importation of records and the invitation of African American musicians and white musicians, jazz musicians as well to France to perform. Um, And a rather, you know, they, 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 the, the hot club, um, the hot clubs, I think kind of sense of itself, right. Even as they were kind of developing a fan base was also to be kind of unlike, you know, Um, they are separating themselves from the kind of um, the average consumer of jazz, right? The people who might have come across an album or interested in Josephine Baker or something, this is like kind of, you know, they're, they're distinguishing themselves from this kind of more average listener. They are like this kind of chosen. I mean, it had almost kind of a quasi religious quality about it. Um, And so that sense of like their particular role and expertise in jazz was challenged by World War II, um, in which suddenly there was um, a limitation um, uh, on, um, you know, not only access to, you know, jazz materials, but also um, to um, visiting musicians um, and African-American musicians in particular. Um, and one of the things I, other people have made this argument, this is not my original contribution, but there's a lot of, I think, mythologies around, um, you know, jazz being kind of counter, um You know, something that was banned by the Nazis, something that was banned by the you know, not possible. But in fact, I think the sort of strange truth is that jazz actually flourished in a lot of ways during World War Two. It did have associations with Americanness and Jewishness that were played down by many people involved in the hot club world to emphasize its Frenchness. And I think that has always been part of the story, right? The Frenchness was either because of their critical capacity, like the jazz was French because of their ability to discern what was good about it. Um, and maybe also this kind of connection between the French and new Orleans. I mean, there's that as well, but, um, But then actually in in World War II, it became an opportunity for a lot of French bands to perform um, and come together. And one of the really interesting kind of, you know, stories I tracked within that was also the experience of Caribbean and African um, uh, jazz performers who found themselves in this really precarious position um, as, you know, seeing seeing that, seeing the opportunity, right? Like African-American musicians were not there there was some interest in the idea that a black performer represented or could authenticate a jazz experience. Um, And, um, and, and yet there was also this sense, and I think belief for many white fans that it wasn't the real thing. And so, you know, there was a particular concert by a a group of African Caribbean musicians that the hot club colonial that, um, that, you know, it was like they were kind of allowed on stage in this way, right. To perform and their blackness became a part of the, you know, the interest. Um, but then the reviews and response to it by white um, jazz critics was kind of, yeah, but we know this is not really the real thing. Cause we're so good at discerning this. So it's just a lot was kind of playing out in that interstitial period. I think of, you know, desiring a kind of um, well, many things going on, right. Desiring black performers, um, also, um, enacting or facilitating violence against Black GIs, um, and also this, you know, kind of facilitating a kind of greater sense of ownership um, and um, identification with jazz as a kind of as a French, uh, a French product or a French cultural um,
1: innovation. So fascinating. Great. So on this question of authenticity, let's move now to chapter two, which as a literary person, I really loved because you're switching from kind of talking about, you know, sound and, and the the infrastructure around it to talking about um, books and literature and the ways in which kind of these discourses of authenticity are appropriated by white authors and publishers. So, could you speak a little bit? You mentioned Boris Vian at the beginning of our discussion today. Could you talk a little bit about the two texts that you analyze in this chapter, and how uh, your reading of these texts fit into your book's overall story?
0: Thank you. Well, I should say this chapter represents like the deepest, uh, the deepest dive into like my you know <laughs> psychic relationship to the story because it starts with Boris Vian, and um, and in many ways it's the one I have I've spoken about the least in a way. Um, now that the book is published. So I'm glad to talk about it. So it's um, I put into conversation, I mean, actually two books that absolutely existed in the same, in the same moment, and in, in, in relation to each other in some very interesting ways. So one is um one is Boris Field's um I will spit on your grapes, um, which I mean the backstory of this is is kind of insane, really, when you when you kind of read about it first. But for those of people who aren't familiar, so he was a French um jazz fan and performer, very much like the kind of the he represented in many ways by right, saint germain depre of the of the post war moment so he was this kind of um bon vivant kind of figure um, and he um was you know obsessed with american literature music and african american um literature and music in particular and it's all kind of apocryphal in a way or like these kinds of narratives that mythologies that are produced from this moment. But he um, he wrote um, or he kind of um, made a on a dare, perhaps wrote this book um, that was to, supposed to, you know, the idea was well, he was writing something that was he claimed and was um, sold initially marketed initially as his own translation of a, of a book by an African-American writer, actually a former GI that he had invented named Vernon Sullivan, who supposedly wrote this book about racial passing, racial violence. um, Like this, it's like this very um, like kind of sorted, um, kind of highly sexualized account of, um, of, of the experiences of two brothers. um, One of whom is, um, passing uh, passing for white and the other who was eventually um lynched at the end of the story um for um his relationship with a white woman I, I mean i think the book has a lot of problems in a way but it's an interesting text and the way it was marketed and the way it was um uh, you know taken up and 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 the kind of um the kind of political or kind of social questions that seem to unearth are really interesting. Um, and I think he's really interesting. So there's that book. And then the other um, book that was published around the same time was, um, well, again, supposedly the autobiography of Mesro, but actually co-written with Bernard Wolf who was, um, uh, Bernard Wolf was a, a leftist kind of former Trotskyite, uh, writer. Um, and Mes- was actually a kind of favorite of the, uh, the hot club de France in, um, the 1930s, a white jazz musician from Chicago um, who identified with African-American music and culture to such an extent that he, in a way, made claims um, that became really animated um, in the book. So it's kind of unclear exactly who is responsible for them, but made claims about essentially becoming Black through his relationship to African-American music. He was also, he was white and Jewish. Um, And um, this, so and so that so you have these two stories that are about kind of racial becoming and and I think are making interesting like a lot of claims around authenticity and um, black authenticity in particular even though they're written by um, non-black people and um, what I I'd sort of studied separately and then put together in the book, and um, it's so it has this kind of like for me like Frankenstein quality because I like, wrote a thesis and a seminar paper one about Boris Vian, one about Mezmero, but telling the stories together of these books as well as their translation and publication in France was super interesting, um, and I think that as a kind of literary events, you start to see actually this is where the translation material was more um, was more relevant, right? Um, all the things and all the fantasies about relationships to African-American communities and music that are made possible facilitated by, by these two books.
1: Right. So you talk in this chapter about this question of translation and also reception. Um, How were these books received in these debates around, um, you know, the, sort of rights of African-Americans and, and, and the French perhaps perception of racial injustice in the U S but also blindness to their own. How did this how did these texts play into those contexts?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think they were sort of Boris Vian's book in particular, I guess, was initially pitched as a kind of indictment of American racism. Although again, it's particular kind of, the way it's presented obviously is kind of, um, uh, making that a kind of, um, Giving it a lot of kind of exoticism, right? In a lot of ways, I think the experience of reading it—it's like very clearly supposed to be titillating as a kind of encounter with um, uh, kind of racist systems and racial violence. So, I mean, that's part of it's very a hard read, right? Um, and then um, Mesrose, I think, is more about this kind of, um, for audiences, as a way to imagine themselves, I think, along with Mes as individuals who, through jazz, could gain access to African American culture. And for many, that was really appealing. And what I found super interesting, I mean, I think the, the, there's, you know, there's a mainstream kind of response to both of these books, which I think was, you know, mostly shocked, you know, or sort of kind of, oh, you know, can you believe this? Um, and there's a whole media story about the, the knowledge that, comes out, you know, in slow, you know, about Boris Vian and the true authorship of, of his book. Um, but um, the thing that was most striking to me in reading both was um, how um, how black readers, um, non white readers um, in France as well as within the francophone world to some extent were encountering these books and again, which were making claims about racial authenticity or their capacity to be discerners of racial authenticity. But Mesro's book begins with him kind of, you know, encountering young women who are passing. It's all about these kind of passing stories and about who who can tell who's passing and and who's passing for who. Um, And this is to kind of to paraphrase, um, uh, yeah, another essay. Um, But the... um, but then, so also, you know, the question of authenticity or, or, or racial identity kind of been kind of framed as, as a kind of interesting, you know, topic, and one that had obviously, like a lot of um, commercial interest, right, people are buying these books. So there, I mean, there, it's clearly something that's resonating with a lot of audiences. And so I think for um, Caribbean and African writers and critics, I think they had a range of responses, but what I thought, you know, found interesting, and I kind of noted this throughout the book in different ways was like, this was then becoming, right, in in a moment, the immediate post-war moment in which their own claims or their own um, forms of resistance to French empire and French um, racial racial systems of classification, um, racial, um, racial violence systems of kind of um, the ways in which race... And racial identity is figuring into so much of the kind of French society and not really being marked or, you know, framed in those ways. These books became a kind of interesting, like little small way to get into those questions and start to critique that broader system. And so, um, you know, critiquing that system, but also critiquing. The ability of, of, or the claims that white jazz critics were making to be the arbiters of authenticity and the arbiters of African American music, and so like there's, you know, in some of it was like, you know, maybe for for literary people, kind of it's totally delightful, right? Like there's kind of like interesting, like, um, you know, there's like reviews in Présence Africaine, which is a you know journal that's coming up in this moment, or Lettre modern. and then there'd be reviews of the reviews and other journals. So there's a lot of like intertextual activity. And I I really um found that I was digging into some very kind of specific kind of textual moments. Um, but it comes up a lot, you know, like Franz Fanon is writing about jazz critics, people are writing about Mez Mesro in particular as this kind of interesting cipher, right? It's like, okay, so he is, you know, um, and I again I think his his Jewishness is part of the story, although it wasn't primary. Um But you know his relationship to you know I think he was kind of understood as as white, um, and as as a a non black person accessing African American music and and culture, Um, um, and 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 that and that claim in particular that you could become black through this affiliation was super interesting um, to white readers, and then I think super. Um, I don't know say disconcerting but some something to put some pressure on I think for a lot of um, black uh, black writers and readers um, so I think it was a kind of a small yet powerful space textual space in which just you start to see like um you start to see some of the the pressures of this moment um, I think with some clarity
1: yeah and your' th- Your following chapter really takes the, you know, continues this debate because it begins with this really remarkable text that you found, this manuscript that you found at the BNF called The Truth About Mes Mesro. Um, So could you just speak a little bit about this remarkable archival document and how it framed the argument of your third chapter?
0: Yeah, that was quite an interesting find. So it was in the Charles Delaunay papers and- Actually, I mean, the kind of prehistory, right, is that, the you know, as I mentioned, the Hot Club, all these debates among jazz critics about what's authentic or not. One of the things they would do was they would um, recruit and, um, and demand that black jazz musicians write letters and kind of authenticate their own critical positions. Right. And so, of course, you had a lot of musicians in this period who were kind of like working in between, trying not to alienate one fan base while they're sort of helping out this particular critic. Um, Louis Armstrong, in particular, I think, was someone whose voice or perspective or um, kind of, you know, was really critical to sort of these authenticity debates. Um, And so, um, Mez Mesro was a particular friend of Hugues Pinossier, who became kind of associated with the more conservative, um, traditional view of jazz. And so, I think that the truth about Mes Mesro, this document that was written um, by Marge Singleton, who was the um, wife of Zuddy Singleton. Um, I think it was in Delaunay's papers because he was collecting um, kind of, you know, narratives um, and testimonies of, of, of um, black jazz musicians or their wives, right. To as fuel against Panassier and Mesro, right. So it's none of this, the, the provenance of this, uh, of this document it's interesting. Like he's collecting it. It was never published. It never became kind of known, but it was in you know his archive. And so, but this is a story essentially in which you now have um, uh, you know an African American woman writing about um, uh Mesro's betrayal, right? He's someone who gets up on stage and talks about being a friend of African-American performers. He's claimed that he's in fact, right, um, a member of this group. And what the story is, or the truth of Mesro is that he's not paying them and that he's facilitating non-payment. And this, um, I mean, reading this put everything, kind of clarified everything about this for me, because I suddenly, right, was, you know, been building up this whole story in the previous chapter about this kind of, you know, small debates around authenticity in these books, which in a way has a kind of smaller scale. And then you realize, of course, that this all has implications for how African-American musicians in particular navigated um, this fandom, right? And, and, and this, is a, this is a chapter that goes, essentially tracks this history from the smaller scale fandom and a hot club and like kind of this select few, um, you know, jazz fans, right into a huge commercial enterprise. And this is the birth of massive record labels, um, like Vogue and Barclay, which became, you know, had um, really, um, really became powerful uh, arbiters in not just African American music, but popular music in France, and beyond. And, um, and that story to me, and I mean, Arguably, the music industry is always exploitative. So I think that there's a question there, right? To what extent is this a, like a story that has a particular kind of resonance in France, or you know, is there a particular dimension of it in France? Um, I, I think you know, again, many musicians I've spoken to have talked you know quite openly about right the kind of music industry in general, right? It's 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 an African American music and musicians um, experience in a different way um, because. Um, Well, because their musical creations are so foundational to other genres and musical forms, Um, so I think there's all kinds of slippery ways in which that gets appropriated or um, exploited. Um, But the situation in France, I do think, is is the particular resonance I think is because of the narratives that circulate about how great it is for African American music or musicians. So that that narrative, that story of celebration and the you know French as kind of you know. Big fans, big friends. as being the place where you make it, right? If you put that in, um, if you put that in conversation with the actual experiences of many musicians, you start to see. I think the exploitation or the lack of payment at certain points, or the the payment there's payment that doesn't really match the impact that their performances or their music is actually having on profits, so if that makes sense. So I think so many of them were called upon to represent the label, right? And so their faces, their bodies, their their racialized identities were critical to the sale. Um, and so maybe, but maybe what they're being paid for is like one recording session, right? But like it's – so I think that they are kind of, you know, um, African-American musicians um, rightfully kind of felt um, – uh, various forms of exploitation um, across the post-war period within the French record industry.
1: Right. It was so um, striking to read about this history. I mean, I was really shocked <laughs> to learn about the details around it. And um, you also, I enjoyed in this chapter how you even analyzed that on the visual covers of the records themselves. Um, I'm thinking of one in particular of um, Big Billy Bronzy, whose song, you know, some of his songs, um, you know, if, if you're black, get back, if you're white, you're all right, continue to be very popular today. And you do this beautiful analysis of how he is, his body is invisibilized, you know, in, in, in a way on the, on the cover itself. So it's really pointing to that tension between using these artists for the record labels, um, development um marketing but also invisibilizing the artists themselves yeah. in really concrete ways.
0: Yeah. I mean I think he's I mean really I mean the the kind of blues uh, in, the blues explosion in both France and Germany and the UK in this period was built upon Brunzi's work and um and it it was critical foundational to it and, and and in some ways right it came at a point where his career was uh, you know floundering and and I think he found some stability through this for a period but it, I don't, I don't, you couldn't say that his economic kind of impact on him, right? Um, You know, I I think he died relatively impoverished, right? It didn't match what was happening in Europe and what was made possible by his music and his physical presence there. And then also, as you're right, you're talking about the representation of him on covers um, and representation of a lot of African-American musicians. Um, I think the, you know, the, the other one that really strikes me is the, the the career of Sidney Bechet, who was incredibly successful. I mean, he was, in fact, you know, did make a lot of money in France and had, I think, um, you know, there's kind of famous, you know, you know, stories of him like in his kind of cars and his kind of and his homes and his marriages. Right. There was a there was certainly um, a success. And I think um but he saw and wrote about and talked about in interviews, like he was very clear about exactly what what had happened there and how how that was not something that he's, you know, blinded him to the kind of racism he saw in France and toward people of African descent. Um, but it's also interesting, right, that he was talked about by Vogue um, as this kind of like, um, like a talisman, like as this kind of like his his physical presence, his identity, was like the was like the key symbolic story of the of the record label, um, and it, I think facilitated too, right? And there's and I began thinking about this in, in the in the book and, and keep thinking about it, right? How the transition from a kind of small community of fans to a mass commodity, what it means when that's facilitated by black performers and. There's, I think, other examples in American history, and I think also in French. where you think of like the Bananya ad, right? Like how a kind of commercial story is made possible and rooted in different representations of um, of African of, of black people, right? Um, and and their embodied presence on those goods. Like, is that something that's making that kind of transition to a mass commodity form, you know, palatable or or possible, right? Is it something that people are uncomfortable with and is given a kind of a different weight or authenticity back to that question Um, because of representations of black people? I don't, you know, and, and I mean, again, there's lots of that story in the U S right. Whether like aunt Jemima or uncle Ben, like that, um, that black people have kind of given a commercial identity to something that might otherwise be a kind of, um, yeah, seen as a kind of inauthentic move to you know pancake mix from you know doing it yourself. Like there's this kind of interesting role, and so I know I see I see a kind of parallel there in this story as well.
1: Yeah, so fascinating. Um, I wanted to switch gears and talk about the other major genre that you discuss in this book, which is the spiritual. Um, because you, you go beyond jazz. Um, Could you tell us a bit about who Louis Achille was and what the spiritual, the Negro spiritual meant for him? And um, what was his role in making this genre of music popular in France to the degree to which it was?
0: Um, He was another, right, figure who just, um, I'm so grateful for the, the the opportunity to have written about him and uh, also to his family who made um, possible and actually just donated some of his papers to the um, Municipal Library in Lyon, where he was from. So he was um, born in Martinique from a very um, bourgeois, wealthy Martinican family, you know, very unique in a lot of ways. They, um, his, um, the Nardal sisters were his cousins, so the listeners who are familiar with their salons and that's kind of a foundational part of the negritude movement. So, and so Achille was born in Martinique, was um, studied in France um, at uh, the Lycée Louis-le-Grand. He was part of, you know, a very um, uh, kind of, you know, unique cohort of students, um, friendly with, um, you know, uh, Georges Pompidou, but also, you know, in that moment, um, Leopold Senghor and Aimé Césaire, who were also students. So he's right there in this world helping translate conversations at the salons of the Nardal sisters, meeting African-American writers and educators. And in that moment, there's an initial interest, but it really comes into fruition when he decides to take up a post teaching English at Howard university in 1931. Um, Cause he was training to become an English teacher and he, Thought he would stay just for a year, ends up spending nine years at Howard, also teaching in summers at um, Atlanta University, had a French summer school, which is also super interesting. And in that period, he became really entranced and enamored um, uh, with um, the spiritual, and in particular, um, African-American spirituals as performed by the Howard Glee Club, in which young men would be wearing tuxedos. And this was all really exciting for Achille because he was someone who I think wrote about his whole life struggled with his relationship between a kind of a French and Martinican or African identity. And I think he ends up kind of resolving it in some interesting ways, but very drawn to the kind of discourse of civilization, very drawn to anything that suggested, right. That there was a kind of synthesis of a kind of African and Western. And this really appealed to him. And I think some of his early writing is, 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 you know, Pretty snobby. It's pretty. Um, um, I think it's very dismissive of anything he doesn't see as being cultivated, um, and and is not you know, kind of fitting within his you know he really bought into I guess you could say a kind of colonial um, civilizing mission framework. So the Glee Club was super interesting to him. This itself is a whole other history of how Howard's how their interpretation of of the spiritual was. Um, itself kind of controversial within a history of African American religious music and this is all before gospel really comes into kind of commercial success. So he brings us back to France and starts a choir at the Lycée du Parc, which was a well-known school in in Lyon um, that specialized in the performance of what they call Negro spirituals and um, this the choir existed for 30 years and um, it's a really interesting story. And I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what I thought about what they were doing. You know, um, it was at a time when there was, I think, interest in the spirituals, partly because of Sim Copanz's radio programs that he um, was doing at this time. There were a lot of other French, entirely white French quartets and choirs that were performing spirituals. Um, you know, there's a, there's a story here that I don't know that I, Feel fully equipped because I'm not deep into kind of French religious history of kind of to what role this is playing in a kind of secularizing country and how how it's kind of facilitating changes in Catholicism, um, but the um, but the choir you know at moments it was entirely white at moments it was entirely men um, but as France was changing the choir changed and at various points I you know my understanding though there's not much written about it, he led even colonial choirs of colonial students in France. I mean, he was friendly with Frantz Fanon, even though they were very different people, uh, but they had a relationship because they were two Martinique men living in Lyon, which, and Lyon was not a place that was especially welcoming, I think, to outsiders. Um, and um, so this choir, I think, is really interesting. I mean, they were performing African-American music, um, Ashil was very involved. He he did most of the singing of the lyrics and the choir would kind of respond to him. Um, he was always physically in front of and part of the choir's performance, which I think is really interesting because it wasn't like he was just kind of giving this music to um, a largely white choir to perform. He, I think his physical presence and his own um, racial identity, right? I think he was, I, I think that was a part of what was he was doing. I think he was partly showing and, and demonstrating his own centrality, that story, and I think his own sense of his right to perform that music. Um, I mean, I think there's, a, you know, really interesting material to think through about what it means when, um, and this happens all the time in the United States, right? Like spirituals, are frequently a part of like school or college choir performances. And I think that is an interesting space to consider um, and how that is done and what it, you know, what it facilitates, what kinds of knowledge and encounter and proximity does it facilitate um, and, and what we think of that. I think I, I don't have a full answer, but what I did observe in the choir that he led, the Park Glee Club, it was that there were many conversations about racial injustice and racial inequality within the choir, and that all the former participants talked about their growing knowledge of that and their familiarity and appreciation for African American music and history as a result of it. So I think that um, I think that there's no question that there had to have been a sort of um, the appeal, the attraction to that experience was about, you know, there is a sort of a story of appropriation. There is a story of proximity and how that feels. And I think that was certainly a part of the appeal for a lot of people, but I, um, I also, you know, don't know that I would dismiss it entirely, right. As a kind of act of appropriation or expropriation. I mean, there was no profit to be made. Right. And also I think Ashiel's presence gave it a different tenor than um, some others. So I, but, you know, it's an interesting story to me. And when I continue to wrestle with, to think exactly about, what was going on.
1: Right, and it is very different from, you know, your previous chapter where you're talking about the development of this commercial label, you know, record labels. He's doing something very different. At the same time, it is being broadcast also through radio, um and in some cases through shortwave radio to um you know, colonial spaces, um, including in Africa. And so I want to make sure we spend a little bit of time before the end here talking about that post-colonial era that you explore in chapters five and six. So in five, you revisit Sim Copans again and his role in in the Cold War, in the voice of America and during the Cold War period but also how this music is received on the African continent. So can you speak a little bit about, about that, about the link between African-American music and African music, and who are the intermediaries that are making these links in the end of your book?
0: You know, the story is in part a continuation of a lot of the earlier parts of the book, which was always was interesting to me, right? So again, the Copan story was fascinating because he was, you know, doing his radio programs um, on the French radio and then um, through the State Department. And then in the mid-50s, it actually transitioned to being um, a, an employee of the French radio, no longer with the State Department, um, which I think definitely had to do with McCarthyism and his own relationship to the State Department, though it's not entirely clear how that played out. Um but then he, then he became a freelancer to the State Department, um, and actually he was involved with Radio Free Europe. So I can't say that he was, you know, he was definitely involved in a kind of um, Cold War kind of infrastructure. Um, but he um, started to do these lecture tours in provincial France, but then started to expand from them to doing lecture tours um, in North Africa and um, in, in West and Central Africa and in Francophone and the Francophone, uh, Francophone Africa after the kind of decolonization. Um, and this was all facilitated by the State Department. And I think facilitated by his own interest in um, speaking to, for him, he was really interested, I think, in speaking to African students and African audiences about African American music, because his whole lecture circuit was a lecture premised on African American music and being African. I mean, in, in sense, tracking a transatlantic story he was not interested in a story about jazz that went from new orleans to chicago or you know he was really interested in connecting this and he was using the work of ethnomusicologists and recordings that you know now kind of folkways um the folkways record um records that Um, making the kind of connections. And I think he was, you know, Waterman and I came from some of the other ethnomusicologists he was talking about, but, you know, it wasn't entirely his own creation, but he was facilitating um, a French and Francophone encounter with that story. Right. That if you hear recordings of drumming um, in, you know, West Africa, you're going to see parallels with, um, you know, this recording in Alabama, you know, whatever, you you know, at the same time. So, um, so he, that's what he was doing. And I think he and his radio programs were being broadcast um, throughout the, um, the Francophone world and post the post-colonial kind of French Francophone world um, through the mid uh, or the early to mid uh, 1960s. Um, and that was, you know, um, hard won knowledge for me going <laughs> to the French uh, kind of national kind of archives and finding all of these programs of, you know, how his how his, how his programs were circulating, um, in that period. And, um, that, so that was one piece of it. Um, Achille was also, um, you know, went to the 1966 festival in Dakar. So it was also kind of a part of that moment. Um, but I think that the, the story of how African American music was heard, um, you know, and, and I, I can't make claims to having, you know, this is in some ways, I think the end of my book, it's, it's kind of a culmination as well as a kind of a point of departure. You know, I, it's, um, I'm not someone who is, um, I wasn't able to do extensive archival research in multiple um, African countries. I was largely working in Senegal and from published materials, but the time in Senegal that I was there was so interesting to begin to encounter a new cohort of intermediaries and becoming acquainted with a story of, of intermediaries that was, Tied to, linked to all the stuff I had been talking about before in the book, right? The record industry, the French radio infrastructure, the State Department, some circuits of black internationalism, um, even the kind of you know circulation of books and and, and and media. There's also a kind of a really different story, and you know, one of the um, interviews that was most um, you know striking for me um, uh, was with a DJ um, in um, Senegal who um, was you know. Um, Kind of playing um, African American music and soul in particular and became kind of facilitating um, many of James Brown's first or trips to Senegal. Um, So you see someone like that. Um, You see um, a lot of uh, African listeners kind of encountering and pushing back against kind of some of the State Department apparatus. There's um, stories, uh, you know, that I in interviewing different radio hosts, I think there were local radio programs, many of which would bring on people's friends and kids from the neighborhood to talk about what they were listening to. So there was kind of this top down, you know, or there was this network story. And that's what I wanted initially the story to be. Okay, it's all kind of coming there. But actually, the story in post-colonial, you know, Senegal, for um, in particular, I think demonstrated all kinds of different spaces of mediation. I mean, another one was um, a flight attendants, apparently, we were like a really key source of African American music in the mid '60s, as we started to see, um, the, you know, the direct transatlantic flights from the U.S. to West Africa for the first time, and so many of them were like carrying records back, you know. So it wasn't just you know, French cultural intermediaries and radio hosts and jazz critics who were, um, you know, the only voice representing, um, you know, what African American music could mean. Um, there were other kind of um, smaller scale um, kind of interpretations.
1: Yeah, no, that's so that's so interesting. and And I just love how you frame your book in this way, because your introduction opens, you know, when we're thinking about the performance and and the role of festivals and performances, your introduction opens with Ray Charles's performance um, in Paris at the Palais des Sport, which you described so eloquently was just days after what we know to be the bloody massacre of Algerians who were protesting the Algerian war in Paris. And then, um, so, you know, so he's singing, you know, these songs that are associated with black freedom in this space um, that was, you know, one of colonial repression and power. And then you, in your conclusion or in the sixth chapter, rather, you talk about um, James Brown's performance in the former Zaire. Um, And so I really think your book really beautifully kind of frames these two different um, performances and the soundscapes that they, you know, were operating within, but also created um, and contrasts and kind of traces colonial history into post-colonial history in these ways. C- could you speak a little bit about that per- James Brown's performance and kind of how you, it why you chose it kind of at the end of your book?
0: Well, I had found out about the performance and a recording of it um, by in this, in a it's in a uh, biography by R.J. Smith. And, um, and I can't remember the name of the filmmaker, but it was like a French, I think it was a French filmmaker, and it was like a it was a documentary about James Brown and Senegal that never really circulated. And I, I mean, I finally found some very bootlegged version of it that I was able to use. And I think you know, I was I was so interested in. It's like, you know, so when I was writing the book, right, you know, I'm not a musicologist, I'm not a music theorist, right? So I was always drawn to the material dimensions of it, right? You know, it's like, okay, here's a song, but like so much of how people encounter a song is about the, you know, the record industry and how it frames it. What picture does it put on the cover? What do the liner notes say? Like, where did you first listen to it? Or the radio, right? What kind of radio set was it? How did the host... You know, present it. How did they frame it for your ears? What did you imagine the host looking like? You know, television. I talk a little bit about television. too. So all these, you know, I'm very, I was very committed to thinking about music encounters as being almost, you know, really uh, material driven. I mean, they, they weren't, they weren't just kind of happenstance. There was so much to, you know, understand about how, what went into shaping that experience or encounter. But then musical performance, right, space is a performance, concerts, kind of blow that up a little bit. Because, of course, it's all about all the ways in which that performer ends up on that stage and you, the audience member, end up in that space. And, you know, the Ray Charles story in particular feels like you really do want to be att- attentive to all the structural dimensions that not only made it possible for um French audiences to be there and be listening to Ray Charles and loving Ray Charles, but also all the ways in which that enabled them to not hear or see what was happening in France and Paris at that same time. So it's like the structural, I think dimension is actually very helpful in that case. The James Brown performance that I talk about, and I was, you know, um, one of the, I was reading um, work by James Sneed about repetition um, and what happens in a kind of an African-American music and vernacular. And it was, such an interesting um, performance space to take note of. There's a kind of, um, I think Brown is making all kinds of decisions. He's like running into the crowd in ways that probably his, you know, handlers were not thrilled about. And it just became clear that the performance space can also be a, a space of total surprise And and improvisation to be sure, but also just unexpected kinds of decisions and encounters, right? And I became more attuned to how James Brown was responding to his audience. Um, you know, even in some of his vocalizations, responding, I think, in a way to a call to prayer that he may have been hearing. Um, this is I'm borrowing a little bit from RJ Smith here too. I thought it was such an interesting kind of insight and I began to think about that, right? Um, this Muslim country and like what what soundscape he was in there, right? And how that was informing his performance. I mean, again, to think about that in relation to the Ray Charles concert, that's a concert that I think or set of concerts that were so much more tightly controlled because of the Algerian War, right? So I think that's also part of it. Like, there's different performance spaces enable different kinds of exploration and possibility and um, unexpected moments. Um, and, you know, I mean, one of my other favorite performance stories in the book, uh, which I think I just talk about briefly in the introduction, um, is a performance by Cannonball Adderley, um, in which he's you know, he's in Paris, I think it's 1969. He's talking about how great it is to be in Paris, you know. I don't he may even say April in Paris, I can't remember. But then he said it, but we all know how great why it's so great to be in Paris, and that's because we're getting paid. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. And he kind of like in this moment, right, of the performance punctures the whole mythology, right, that everyone is there to participate in. That like African American music musicians love being in Paris. You know, French people love African American music. And he's reminding everyone in that moment that he knows that this is about labor, this is about payment, and that's why he's there. Which, you know, is, I mean, he says it in this way that's like, you know, charming and delightful, as always, in his voice, but it's, he's still saying the truth, and in the concert space, it's possible.
1: Right, absolutely. And and I think, you know, one of the questions that you raise in your epilogue, I think really is one of the central questions of your book that I think is touched on in that quote as well, which is why is African American culture so valued when black lives are not? And I think your artists, you know, your, your book really shows how these artists have been, you know, co-opted and used in these different ways, but how they're also kind of using their platform to, you know, to the, to certain degrees. So the the degree, the degree to which they're able to, um, to create agency for themselves and to have these moments of, you know, of self-affirmation. And certainly we see that in the final James Brown concert um, as well. And, and kind of the, the symbolism of his, his presence there and also the value of his image and his music for African audiences, um, you know, you have that, that beautiful photo of girls dancing to right. the James Brown record.
0: Right. I mean, he represented a kind of form of masculinity. I mean, there's a lot to unpack about James Brown, but like in terms of what he represented, um, right, it, it, there was a posture and, um, and an exaltation, I think, that felt. Um, kind of on, you know, in a way like was able to kind of come out in its fullest form in these spaces. And, um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's incredibly interesting to think about how right African-American performance, as well as black critics and audiences, um, and writers, how, right. There's, I think that they recognize this tension that you were just talking about that I bring up in the epilogue of like African-American music being valued and black lives, not right. That that's, that tension is not confusing to anybody, and that and that contradiction is not surprising to anybody who's part of it and who finds themselves subject to that. Um, so the question is kind of what do you do with that, right? To what extent does that become like a kind of narrative or discourse of authenticity or um, expertise? Um, or opens up certain kinds of possibilities to then critique, you know, a broader kind of cultural, you know, sometimes it does. And then sometimes I think it just is something that is a truth that people see and accept and just recognize like themselves within that structure. Um, And so, you know, there's other stories of people who didn't necessarily speak out as a result of that, the knowledge of that contradiction, um, but we're never, I think, blind to it. I think it was um, something they were aware of.
1: Well, Celeste, before we let you go, um, let me just conclude by asking um, what you are working on currently. Where, where is your research going from here, and what can we look forward to reading from you next?
0: I um, there's a lot of pieces of the book that have been um, continue to be interesting to me. I think the intersection of race and capitalism, um, and the and the, the history of media and um, and sound media in particular um, i have been um i'm co-teaching with a colleague here a class in, in sound studies and i am just finding myself reacquainted and delighted by that body of work um so um i'm not entirely sure the shape it will take it's all very early um and it's a whole different bag of uh, tricks <laughs> to create a new project <laughs> after something that has been this um long and process but um i'm interested in i guess two twinned questions of objectivity and race in media and how that is, how that, how that is kind of unfolded over the kind of second half of the 20th century and how and black journalists and media makers and producers navigated that. Um, and um, I think the global, gl- global dimensions of that story continue to be interesting to me as well. So I'm starting to kind of look into various um, journalists and producers um you know people working within the media industry and trying to think about um, you know how um, how black producers and journalists in particular kind of responded to some of the kind of um, expectations or um, you know um, definitions of objectivity or journalism and its practices um, and and you know the, and the ways in which that you know, which is that sometimes they adhered to those and and in some ways created alternative spaces for um, producing knowledge or sharing knowledge with um, Black readers and audiences. So, um, yeah, I think kind of picking up a lot of different pieces of that were most interesting to me in the story. But um, and I hope it takes me back to France. There's definitely a French part of the story. I'm I'm not. It seems like I always get back there somehow. So.
1: I hope so. One can hope that one's research allows for that, right? One can
0: always hope. <laughs>
1: Well, Celeste, thank you so much for this really wonderful conversation. Um, It was such a pleasure for me to read your book. I learned so much from it. And there's so much more that we didn't have time to discuss. So I'm sure our listeners will run out and get a copy of it and um, read as much as they can because it's really, it's, it's it's a wonderful read. So thank you so much for your scholarship and for your time today. Oh,
0: it's a great pleasure. Thanks so much, Annie.
1: Thank you.